Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. Um, hey, we are in the fourth and final week of a series called Who Am I? Next week, I'll talk to you about this in the announcement part of our thing tonight, but next week, uh, we're going awkward. We're going super awkward. We're going to talk about sex and dating and relationships. It's going to be fun, so y'all should come, okay? And it's going to get real weird. All right, but um, tonight, we're talking about Who Am I? And I'll tell you, as a reminder, if you haven't been here or if you've only been here for part of it, I believe there's the two most important questions of your life. Number one, who is God? You got to answer that question. You just have to. And by the way, a non-answer is an answer. Who is God? Number two, who am I? These questions will rule rule the direction of your life. Specifically, the question, who am I? Now, I'm going to take you back to week two when I drew a diagram and Ashton drew this for me because he's got way better handwriting um, than I do. Can we get um, these stage platform lights up uh, over here? Uh, No, that's not what I need. This is what I need. Anyways, maybe you can see it. Here we go. Is it coming? Is it coming? Yeah, maybe a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. There we go. Brightness. Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. All right. So here it is. Um, This is what I drew for you. This is you. You're the circle. At the center is the word identity. At the center of yourself, you believe something about yourself. You believe that you are the way you are. You believe who you are. You have that question answered. So you have an identity. That identity leads to tendencies. There's certain ways that you just think, react, think, you know, uh, talk, reason. There's just tendencies about you. Those tendencies lead to actions that you almost always respond in this particular way, or you do these different things, or you have these impulses. Those are coming from tendencies. Those impulses are coming from tendencies, which are coming from an identity. Those actions always have consequences, good, bad, doesn't matter. Consequences are consequences. You can have good ones, you can have bad ones. And those consequences ultimately lead you to a reality. And the crazy thing is this, is that whatever you end up believing about yourself is what ultimately becomes real. Or another way to put that, it'll be on the screen, is to say this, I live what I believe that I am. You believe you're a C student, you're going to have tendencies that a C student has will lead to actions which lead to consequences, and then you get your report card and you go, see, I knew I was a C student. No, you believed you were a C student, and you acted like a C student, therefore you got C's. You live what you believe you are. Now, here's the problem with this is this, is that right here, we can get a lie jammed up right here, and there's a group of people that want to lie to you about who you are. Okay, the world is one. The world wants to lie to you about who you are. It wants you to fit their mold more than ever before. The world wants you to fit its mold. So the world will tell you, oh, no, 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 that's not not who you are. This is who you are. They'll put a lie there. Your parents, some of them well-intentioned, some not well-intentioned. Your parents can put a lie, can say this is who you are and label you something and you start living that out. Your friends or your boyfriend or girlfriend can say, no, let me remake you into the image that I want you to be. Your enemies, oh, your enemies love to find something about you that they can label you as that ultimately rule your life. And if none of those people do it, let me let you in on this little secret. I believe there is a spiritual enemy in this world, and I believe the spiritual enemy wants nothing more than to still kill and destroy your life. And so this enemy will say, let me lie to you about who you are. 
So what the point of this series is, is to say, okay, but if we're believers, and I know that probably not everyone in this room is, but if we're believers, God says, I want to wipe all those lies clean, and I want to put who I believe you are in here, because if you start catching my identity that I've given you, it will ultimately rule your life. How does this work? Just real quick. I've given you some really hard stories. I just want you to know this is not a hard story, although you should feel sorry for me at the end of the story, just so you know. But this is not like a counseling session. Okay, let me just tell you a story. So when I was growing up, I was in elementary school, and uh, my mom taught the same elementary school that I went to. She was a third grade teacher. I was in this elementary school. Now, growing up, I thought, I just assumed that all teachers were friends because you all work at the same school. So I'm like, y'all must be friends. I found out later that's not true. Like a good chunk of them hate each other, which is kind of fun. Um, Okay, so um, I didn't know this at the time, but my mom and the art teacher did not like each other. And it was probably about third grade for me. I loved art. Once a week, I got to go to art. Now, I like gym more, but I liked art. Okay, it wasn't like a blow. I really liked it. I like getting in there, like getting crafty, right? Like doing some stuff. I don't know what we did, but I was doing it, man. And so I was in there trying to do art. Now, I'm just going to be real honest with you. I probably was terrible at it. Probably. Okay. But I remember I liked it and I liked to do it. And I remember there was one day in particular that I was asking whatever the project was. I don't remember the project. Whatever the project was, I kept asking a bunch of questions. I could not understand how to do whatever the next step of the project was. And so I kept asking questions. I was probably being annoying. But when, as a teacher myself, I teach people, just not in a school setting, as a teacher myself, really all that I care about, I'll let you know a secret, all I really care about is that you care about what I'm giving you. You see what I'm saying? Like, whether you do it or not, that's up to you. Like, you stand before God, not me. I just care that you care. The moment that a teacher feels like, oh, you're totally indifferent is the moment the teacher's like, I'm done, right? So I would think that even asking all these annoying questions, the teacher would be like, look, Tim's annoying, but at least he cares about what we're trying to do, right? So I get maybe question number 50 and I walk up to this art teacher and I was like, you know, Miss So-and-so, and I do remember her name, but I will not say it because it's on a podcast, right? I'm not going to talk trash about people, but I should. But anyways, um, I go, Miss So-and-so, I don't know how to do this, blah, 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 blah. you know, whatever it is. And I had annoyed her clearly. And she sighed when she said this to me. And this is probably more about the way she felt about my mom than it was about me. But in that moment, she sighed and she said, Tim, you are hopeless and you are just not creative at all. And I'm like a little third grader, like like withering, dying inside, you know. And she took the project from me and just finished it for me. Now, if any of you are studying to be a teacher, it probably should be covered in like teaching 101. Don't call your kids hopeless. Kylie, don't do that. Don't call kids hopeless. Don't say bad things about them. But here's what I learned in that moment. I'm not kidding. And again, this is not a counseling session because let's face it, the world did not lose the next great artist on that day. I wasn't going to be anything. That wasn't what I was supposed to. Boom. Hopeless, not creative, and maybe even a third, which would be, and you're annoying when you ask for help. So consequently, that led to tendencies, which lead to actions, which lead to consequences, which lead to reality. And now anytime anyone's doing anything technical or handsy or crafty or artsy or whatever it is, I just immediately back out and go, I can't do that. Like, I can't even draw stick figures at this point because I've been so avoiding art for my whole life. Right. And again, no big deal. It's not that big of a deal. But I'm telling you, the, the, the craziest, the stranger on the street can say something that lodges in U.S. identity. 
So what we want to do is we don't want to live a lie because we live what we believe we are. If we believe a lie, we'll live a lie. We don't want to live a lie. So the question is, what does God say about us? And I will tell you just real quick. I mean, I've said this every week, but in case you're joining us for the first time tonight, I'm going to be honest with you. When I say who God says you are, this is strictly for people who believe in Jesus and have trusted him. Like this is all this is. Identity is for the believer in the Bible. That's it. And I'm going to kind of include both people here. You're going to hear me how how this works out tonight. But I want to replace for our fourth week, I want to replace a lie that on the surface of it, it sounds really good. It sounds really good. In fact, it sounds religious. And here's the lie that I think a lot of us believe. Okay. In terms of who you are and particularly who you are in relationship to God. Ready? Thank you, Ashton, for the beautiful word. Now my terrible handwriting because I'm hopeless and not creative. Okay, Um, now it comes out. Ready? Here it is. Sinner. Saved. By. Sinner saved by grace. There's a group of people that if you ask them who they are, particularly in their relationship to God, they say, and usually in a Southern accent, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, brother. You know, okay. You're like, wow, what a rude caricature of the South and religious people. Okay, that's fine. Here's the deal. There's a group of people that believe this. It's a lie. It's not true. And you go, and, and we're going to get into this, but some of you go, oh, okay, but you're just kind of being picky. And as I unpack why it's not true, you're going to think, oh, you're just being picky, but I'm not being picky. If you honestly believe this about yourself, it will have real world implications in your life. I'm telling you, if this is how you view yourself. Okay, so let's let's look at the phrase sinner saved by grace. What's the identity word in the phrase sinner saved by grace? Somebody, please, when I ask for this, actually do it. What's the identity word in the phrase? Somebody say the word. Thank you. Beautiful. Crowd participation. Sinner. Sinner. That's an identity word. And what is it that sinners do? Sin. Thank you. Yeah. Sin or sin. If you view yourself as a sinner, I'm talking again, I'm talking to people who've believed and put your faith in Jesus. I'm going to get to the non-believer in a second. Because I know there's non-believers here. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. We're not singling you out. We're glad you're here. But if you believe you're a Christian, you believe that in heart of hearts, like that's just who I am and I'm a sinner. Whether or not you dress it up with saved by grace, you just believe I'm a sinner. Here's the problem. Sinner sin. So believing this right here leads to tendencies which lead to actions, which lead to consequences, which lead to a reality. You believe you're a sinner, you end up saying things like, well, that's just who I am. I'm just a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. And so you go, okay, but Tim, now you're like, okay, but you're not saying the whole phrase, like, right? You're just saying that's the identity word. Sure, it's the identity word, but you're leaving off the rest of the phrase because the whole phrase is sinner saved by grace. So don't take that religious part out of it. Like that's part of the identity too, okay? Let me tell you what the equivalent of this is. 
Can I, can I paraphrase this in the Tim Starry version? Ready? Here it is. Well, my life is hell now, but I'm going to heaven when I die. That's what you're essentially saying when you say you're a sinner saved by grace. I mean, my life is a hellhole right now, and, and I'm not cussing. Hear me on that. There is an actual place called hell, and you can bring that place into your real life right now, or at least a miniature version of it. My life is hell now, but at least I'm going to heaven when I die. That's miserable. Because what ends up happening when you believe stuff like this is that you start doing some tendencies which lead to actions, which lead to consequences, which lead to reality. I'll give you an example. And you have heard this story a million times, but I'm just the easiest person to pick on in the room because I can't offend my own feelings. Right. I was an alcoholic 10 years at least. Uh, really more than that. I think I was an alcoholic from the moment I tasted the first drink. The moment I felt the buzz, I was like, I want to feel that way every day. I mean, that's alcoholism at that point. And I mean, I'm telling you, it was a miserable hellscape of a life. I was ruining every relationship. I was lying. I was miserable. I was selfish. I was manipulative. I was every terrible, rotten thing that a person could be. And so I had tendencies which led to actions, which led to consequences. And my reality was like, ugh, it's just so gross. But at the core of who I am, you know what I would say? I just can't help it. That's just who I am. You know, when you say phrases like sinner saved by grace, you're really giving yourself a whole lot of permission to sin. And can I ask you this question? And if you've never asked yourself this question before, maybe you should. Why is it that you struggle so much with sin? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I don't know what your flavor of sin is. I wouldn't know. We all have one. I don't know what your flavor of sin is, but whatever it is, have you ever just stopped and said, wait, but seriously, like at a really deep level, not I like it. Okay. Yeah. But beyond that, why do you struggle with sin? Could it be that at the core of who you are, you've believed something about yourself? And that leads you consistently to tendencies which have actions and consequences in reality. And now you look at your reality and it verifies your identity and you go, okay, that's just who I am. Did you know that in the New Testament, we're going to jump into the Bible now, but in the New Testament, we see believers sin for sure. Lots of examples in the New Testament where a person who believes in Jesus sins. See it all the time. However, in the New Testament, even though we see believers sin, in the New Testament, believers are never, ever, 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 underlined ever, New Testament believers are never called sinners. Not once. They're not identified that as, as that anymore. In the New Testament, believers are called saints. They're called holy ones. They're called righteous ones. They're called that over 240 times. There's 240 examples of believers, even believers who sinned the last Friday night were called saints, holy ones, righteous ones. Whereas in the New Testament, if you are a non-believer, right? So there's somebody in the room, maybe you never put your faith in Jesus. Again, we're glad you're here. But in the New Testament for non-believers, they are identified as sinners 330 times. Here's the, here, I think it'll be on the screen, but here's the point. What I'm ultimately getting at is this. If you are not in Christ, you are a sinner in the Bible. There's just no way around it. That's what the Bible identifies you as. By the way, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. 
In the New Testament, you are identified as a sinner if you're a non-believer. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are identified as a saint, a holy one, a righteous one. That's who you are. How does this work out, right? How does this even work? Look at five, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. It'll be on the screen. This is the history of mankind in the first sentence. It's the history of mankind, at least the spiritual history of mankind. Ready? Look at it. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were, ready, made sinners. Pause. Just as through the disobedience of one man, many, that's all you and me, by the way, but before we're in Christ, many were made sinners. What is he saying? He says, there's this one guy in history, you may have heard about him. His name was Adam. Adam was disobedient. Here's what we know about Adam. He's the first human. Consequently, he is the head of the human race. We didn't elect him. We didn't have anything to do with it. But he was the head of the human race. And in a very strange way, and this is where I'm going to lose some of you, but just stick with me here for a second. In a very strange way, when Adam sinned in the garden, you can call it a fairy tale if you want. I believe it literally happened. When Adam sinned in the garden, in a very strange way, all of us, every single person in this room, every single person in Wichita Falls, in Texas, in America, in the world, every single human being was in Adam. Why? Because we all came from Adam. So when Adam disobeyed, it's like every single one of us fell at the exact same moment. Through the disobedience of one man, all of us were made sinners. What that means is this, and this might offend some of you. Okay, I'll just warn you. What that means is this. You were born a sinner. You were actually born a sinner. In other words, you didn't sin. Be, you, aren't, you aren't a sinner. Let me put it this way. I'm going to get it backwards. You aren't a sinner because one time you sinned. You sinned because you were already a sinner. You didn't become a sinner because you sinned one time. You know, you, you, you didn't obey mom when you were two years old, and all of a sudden now you're a sinner. If only you go back to that day at two years old. No, 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 my friend. You were already a sinner, and because you were a sinner, you sinned. Listen, every single one of us was born this way. In fact, I can prove it to you. Someday you're going to have kids, and you're going to agree with me that every single kid is born a sinner. I promise. You know how I know? And I love my kids. My kids are crazy, and they're beautiful, and they're awesome, and they're great. Okay? I'm not talking trash. But hear me. I know that they were born sinners. You want to know how I know? I've never had to teach them once how to disobey. Not one time. But I've had to teach them how to obey. No one had to teach you to disobey. You did that naturally. Why? Disobedience comes natural to you. They had to teach you how to obey. Or at least fake it like you were obeying. Right? We're born this way. Why? Disobedience of one man. We're all in him. Fell. Okay. Bad news. Here's the good news. Ready? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be, ready? Made righteous. Here's what he's saying. You might have heard of this one guy. His name was Adam. He sinned. His disobedience caused us all to fall. We were all made sinners. However, you might have heard of a second man. His name was Jesus. And because of his perfect obedience, even to the point of going to the cross and dying for you, 
and then through His resurrection, if you simply turn to Him, put your trust in Him, believe in Him, this is not a fairy tale. I promise you this is the realest thing you've heard all day. If you simply put your faith and trust in Him, at that moment, you are made righteous. You're no longer a sinner. Something fundamentally huge shifted in your life. You're no longer a sinner. In fact, if you are in Christ, you are not a sinner saved by grace. It might be on the screen. Yes, there it is. You are a saint. And if you need an out, you're a saint who sometimes sins. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint who sometimes sins. Do you see how that's different? It's not saying we're perfect, but you're a saint. And some of you are like, there's no way I'm a saint. Tim, there's no way I'm a saint. No way. You don't know what I did Friday. <laughs> if you knew what I did Friday, <laughs> let me tell you, ain't much saintly behavior going on. You know, I'm like, I don't care what you did Friday. Now, I might ask you, are you truly a Christian? Did you ever really believe? Did you just walk an aisle to make grandma happy? Or did you really put your faith in Jesus? But if you answer yes, I don't really care what happened Friday. You're a saint who sometimes sins. You're not a sinner. It's just not true for you. You go, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just don't know if I believe and buy all this. Okay, let's just play a game. Ready? Let's play a game called, how does Paul identify believers in the Bible? This sounds like a fun game, right? Come on down. You're the next contestant on how does Paul identify believers in the Bible? Okay, what a catchy title. Can't even remember it twice. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start jumping, man, real quick. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, what a beautiful name, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now ready? Here it is. To those, this people in the church, who have been in the past, not are currently, no, to the church, to those in the church who have been, it's already happened, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Pause for a second. Sanctified means set apart for holy use. It's already happened to the people who are believers. They've been set apart for a holy use in them. Old Testament, they had a big temple and they had a tabernacle. And just like a church building, there's different things we need in the church to just do church. Like I needed a whiteboard. The problem in the Old Testament is nothing could come into the tabernacle unless it had been set apart, blessed and purified. So if we were still living by that, this whiteboard could not have come in here until it had been sanctified, set apart, blessed, purified, so it could enter in to the tabernacle. He says, you're no different than the forks and knives and spoons they used in the tabernacle. You were set apart, purified, made ready to be used by God. You were sanctified. And notice he says, it's already happened. And you go, well, I don't feel that way. Again, you go back to Friday night. I certainly don't feel like I've been sanctified, which leads me to this question. Are you going to trust your feelings or are you going to trust God's word? Because I will tell you this, my feelings get it wrong 99.8% of the time. When I trust my feelings, I do something stupid. My feelings are wrong because they're feelings, right? Right? So you cannot feel this way and it still be a reality. It still be true. 
says, to the people who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Ready? Here you are. Here's your part. Saints by calling. Saints, you're a saint. By calling. What is calling? Here's what it is. Have you ever been invited to a really fancy wedding? Like really fancy? Right? And you're like, no, we'll get some fancy friends. Okay? Then you'll be invited to them. All right. So if you go to a really fancy wedding or any really fancy event and you go to the banquet hall, they'll have tables set out and somebody will tell you you're sitting at table four, you know, and the more important you are, the closer to the front of the room you'll be, you know, so <laughs> I just mess some of you up. Next wedding, you're gonna be at the back of the room. You'll be so mad. Okay. But that's how it works. So you walk up to the table and you look on the table are little name cards and there's too many knives and there's too many forks and there's your name. What that means is the same idea. You've been called. You have a seat at the table. That's you. They had prepared for you. You have a seat at the table. When he says you're a saint by calling, what he means is this. You have a seat at the table among all the other saints. Among all of them. You belong. You were called. Come on. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians 1. one. We'll move quickly for Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as... Saints, 2 Corinthians 1.1, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints. Philippians 1.1, this is my favorite one, ready? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It's kind of interesting, because if Paul was writing a letter to the church here, we're a church, right? We're a church. Um, if, the, if Paul was writing a letter to us, he would say, Paul and, you know, some other crazy Greek name, Sosthenes, you know, some other crazy Greek name. He'd say, to all the saints in Wichita Falls. That's how he would address it. To all the saints in Wichita Falls, you'd be including you. But here's what you and I would think sitting in those seats. If somebody said to all the saints in the church at Wichita Falls, you would go, well, he's talking about Pastor Bob. And he's talking about the staff members and the deacons. And he goes, no, dingus, look at this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus that are in Philippi, including, by the way, I'm talking to you. Oh, also your pastor. Right? He calls you saints. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Okay, Colossians chapter one, verse one, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And then back to the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. I want to tell you, I've already said this once, but I need to say it again. Do you know what was going on at this church in Corinth? The Corinthians, you know what's going on? It was a mess. There's no more aggressive book in the Bible than 1 Corinthians. It's aggressive. Paul goes after them. They were sleeping with each other. There was incestuous relationships. They were getting drunk at church, right? They were stealing from one another. There was reason for people to sue one another. There was lying and manipulation and power struggles They were acting everything like maybe they weren't any of this. If anybody could say, I'm a sinner, say, I'm just a sinner, say, is the Corinthians. And yet Paul, and Paul knows all this because he's going to correct all of this in his letter. And yet Paul starts the letter by saying to the saints, I know your life is mess. You're still a saint. In fact, In fact, I think Paul would say this. In fact, the only way you're going to get your life to clean up 
is by figuring out that you are indeed a saint. Why? Because you live who you believe you are. Remember this, in case you missed it the first time I said this. Your identity will always determine your reality. Given enough time, it will. Your identity will always determine your reality. It always goes that direction, but it never, ever, ever goes that direction. Your reality does not determine your identity. What I'm saying to you is this. If your life's a mess, that's not who you are. You've just believed a lie. And the way you correct it is not by trying to change this. You can't change it. And not by trying to get out of these. You can't do that. And not by white knuckling and fixing your actions. I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, How many times have you said that? Has it ever worked? It's never worked. No, you go back. Because your identity always determines your reality. But your reality never, ever determines your identity. In Christ, you're a saint if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, you can be. If you'll simply stop trying to do it on your own and turn to Jesus, you can be. You can. It's not an exclusive club. So how does he do this? How does, how does God make you a saint? Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, what he's saying is this. You once were a sinner. Sure. So if you want to, if you still want to, if you just really, man, you're just tied to that phrase, which I bet no one in here is tied to that phrase, sinner saved by grace. Whether or not you've ever said it, you believed it, but you maybe never said it. But if you're just really tied to that and you really just want to say it, you can say this, I was a sinner and I was saved by grace. That's correct. You're correct in that, but you are no longer. He says, you once were this way. And then look at verse 22. But now, you once were, but now... He's reconciled you as being made right by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Through the death of Jesus on the cross. And when you came to a point of believing it, if you've ever done that, at that moment, something fundamentally shifted in you. You got a new status. And if you'll simply grab a hold of it and actually believe what God has said about you, I promise it will change your reality. I promise. Will it be tomorrow? Probably not. Will it happen in time? I promise it will. I'm going to tell you a story. I might have time to tell you two, but I'm going to tell you a story that kind of sets this up. There was this pastor, it's a true story. There's a pastor who was sitting in a small group Bible study and he said, I'm going to draw up a scenario for you. I just want you to answer honestly. This is a small group study. And so he says, imagine a kingdom. And in the kingdom is a king. And he goes down to the jail and he finds that there is a prostitute locked up. And he says to the, to the jailers, I want you to give the prostitute a full pardon. By the way, this is in no way knocking prostitutes. Okay, I don't, Just using it as an example. I want you to give them a full pardon for their crimes and for what they've done. I want you to set them free. Okay, at that moment, that prostitute's past is totally wiped clean. It's a full pardon. They unlock the cell. She walks out. She's excited. Walks outside. The king then says before she walks off, he says, and also, 
I want to give, I want her to get a full pardon for any future things that she does wrong. Full pardon. This is pretty astonishing. Now her past has been wiped clean and now her future is totally covered and wiped clean. And the pastor says to these people that are in a small group Bible study, he says, let me ask you this question. Do you think that this prostitute would have any motivation to change her ways? And very quickly they go, no, of course not. I mean, he let her off the hook. Full pardon for the past. I mean, that's nice. I mean, be gracious if you want, but a full pardon for the future. No, she was not going to be motivated to change her ways. No way. You just let her off the hook. And let me pause that story and tell you this. This is what people have a problem when you preach grace. You might, some of you might have a problem with preaching grace. What is preaching grace? It's what I do almost every Tuesday night. Every Tuesday night I do this. I preach grace. What is preaching grace? Preaching grace is saying these very biblical statements. Ready? God loves you. But what about? God loves you. But there's some things that no one knows. God loves you. He loves you. Okay. God forgives you. But no, no, he forgives you. He forgives your past. It's wiped clean. He forgives your present. And by the way, he forgives your future. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you're totally covered. Past, present, future. You go out and sin five minutes from now, it's already covered. It's done. And oh, by the way, on top of all of that, you no longer have to perform for God. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to act like someone you're not. And you don't have to act holy and put together. Just be yourself. You're okay. God loves you. Now, I'll tell you, some people have a problem with preaching grace because they're in that small group Bible study and they recall that prostitute story and they go, but you just let them off the hook for past and for present and for future. What motivation do they have to change, Tim? They're just going to go out and live however they want. But the the pastor at this point said, well, I haven't finished the story yet. The king looks at the prostitute and says, your past has been totally wiped clean. Your future has been totally wiped clean. And then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out an engagement ring. And he says, and I would like for you to marry me. And in that moment, the prostitute says yes. And in that moment, her status changes. She goes from a prostitute to a queen. Past is covered, future's covered. Now her status has changed. She's a queen. And the pastor then looks at these people and says, so question, will she have motivation to not go back to her ways? And of course they go, well, absolutely. She's a queen. And for a queen to go back to her old ways would be kind of insane, wouldn't it? A little bit, right? Again, I'm not trying to not prostitutes, but I'm just saying there's probably one life is better than the other. So for them to go back would be kind of a moment of insanity. But hopefully that moment of insanity would be temporary and quick, and she would remember that she is the queen and she would go back to where she's supposed to be. Why? Because she's a queen. She's no longer that. This is what I'm trying to say to you. Look, your past is covered. Your future is covered. Your presence covered. This doesn't give you license to just go out. Listen, because ultimately what Jesus did in the shedding of his body and his blood, like his breaking of his body and his blood was fundamentally change you. Your status has changed. You're no longer a sinner. You've been made righteous. The faster you grab hold of that, the faster your reality changes. 
and life can stop being hell in the here and now. And you can start living way better actions. And oh my gosh, I will tell you, as an alcoholic who has not drank in several years, my reality is way better. My consequences are way better. My actions are way better. My tendencies are way better. Why? Because I grabbed a hold of who I really was. Last story is this. It's not really a story. Um, Bob, Pastor Bob, I don't know if you know this, he has two offices in our church. He has a working office where he works. And then he has a formal office. The working office he works, the formal office he takes important meetings. It feels very formal. Wood-lined walls, thick carpet, heavy furniture. It feels formal. He never works there, so it's spotless. It's perfectly set up, clean. But occasionally he has meetings. Well, when he was interviewing me, he had me in for a meeting. Now, listen, if he has you in for a meeting and you go to the formal office, what happens is as you walk in, you see Pam. Pam's the administrative assistant. Pam will say to you, would you like a, dr- would you like a bottle of water? You know, if you're thirsty, you'll say yes, right? So you grab your bottle of water, you go into the office. Now you're sitting talking to Bob. During that meeting, I guarantee you, no one will say a word to you. No one will ask you to do this, but you will do two things instinctively. Number one, you'll put the bottle of water on a coaster. Guarantee it. Because you're going to look at that furniture and go, shoot, I ain't putting rings on that furniture, right? It's the holy holies, right? Like I ain't going to mess up. You put it on a coaster. The second thing is this, when that meeting's done, I guarantee you, no one will ask you. You'll just do it. You'll pick your bottle up and you'll leave and you'll find a different trash can and you'll put it in there. Why? Because that office is so clean. You go, trash does not belong here. That's an office in our church. If you go downstairs, there's my office. (laughs) It's an office of a pastor in the church. Same thing. But there's no closets in this church that belong to the college ministry. So my office is both storage and an office. I have interns that sit in my office for hours on end. And I have four-year-olds and five-year-olds. She'd get mad if she knew I called her a four-year-old who comes in at the end of every day and does something crazy in my office. My office is a wreck. If you come into my office and you have a bottle of water, I guarantee you, you will not be worried about a coaster. There's not a coaster in the dang office, first of all. you You won't be upset about that. You won't think about it. And I know from experience, because Josiah has taught me this from experience, when we finish our meeting, you will not worry at all about throwing that away. (laughs) And I will leave it for him when he comes back to pick it up. I might leave it four days, but I'm like, he's dang sure going to clean up after himself. All right. Here's why, though. Ready? Because you don't mind trashing out an area that already looks trashed out. But you keep the area clean when it looks like trash doesn't belong. When you look at your life, which one is it? Is it Pastor Bob's office or is it mine? When a temptation, something comes towards you and like, oh, I could go and do that thing again. And oh, man, I, you know, I'm really tempted to do that thing again. Do you have one of two? You got to have one, two reactions. Either number one, that no longer belongs here. It doesn't belong here. It's garbage and it's trash and it doesn't belong here because I've been sanctified and set apart for God's use. I am a saint. It doesn't belong here anymore. So you go, this has become insanely easy. No. Or do you look at your life like you might look at my office? The next time a temptation comes your way, you go, well, I mean, my life's already pretty trashy anyways. What's one more thing? Listen, you're worth so much more than that. Because you've been sanctified and set apart. You're a saint if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, 
then you should come talk to me about how you get in Christ. Because I promise you this, we can change. God can change everything about your life. Because he not just hardened your past and your future, but he raised your status and he didn't have to do any of that. None of that. And he did it. And that's why when I finish praying, we're going to sing one more song and worship. Let's pray. Bye.